You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. We came about doing strategic work really naturally. Um, we just realized and had clients tell us you're helping us strategically right now. And um, you're not saying it's strategy and that's fine, but just so you know, you're helping us um, uh, position a product strategically, re, uh, sort of reorient and, and, and rework how our teams uh, collaborate with one another, how we build digital products. You're putting a, a digital strategy in, in place. We kind of just saw it as doing good work. Hello, I'm Mark Pawlowski, founder of Mex. And that was Mark Baldino, the co-founder of the Chicago-based design agency Fuzzy Math. He was talking there about that elusive, I think sometimes quite intangible goal, but one that's shared by so many agencies and even individual designers, that their work should really matter. It should be strategic. And perhaps getting at the dirty truth of that objective, that it's not something which is really black and white. It's rather an evolving scale where you might end up arriving at your destination all of a sudden, unexpectedly. So I'm talking to Mark pretty illuminating across really a whole range of different areas. He was someone who came on the show and shared very openly, very eloquently about what it means to found and build this mid-sized design agency of 20 or so people, which has become quite highly regarded, particularly for its UX work with healthcare companies and around enterprise software. Before I tell you a bit more about Mark, I'm also conscious that it's been a while. This conversation was actually recorded a few months back, and I'm only just now getting in front of the mic to share it out. So sorry about that, and I do hope to be able to share several more episodes that I've already recorded, and were great conversations with you in the not-too-distant future. That's certainly the ambition. It turns out publishing podcasts and trying to balance some client advisory work in some really rather interesting new industries has been a a bit of a a learning journey for me. Uh, It takes up rather more time than I thought. But anyway, suffice to say, I've been lucky to record with some really great guests recently, and I'm looking forward to sharing those future episodes with you as soon as I can. But let's get back to this chat with Mark, Mark Baldino. So Mark's background is pretty interesting. Yeah, maybe this is another example of something I've come across with several of the previous guests on this show, that the more unplanned your route into human-centered design, Actually, often the more likely you are to go on to do quite unexpectedly accomplished things. Now, in Mark's case, his university degree was in theology, and we talk about how he started working initially for nonprofits in Washington, D.C. And you'll hear him describe a couple of different forks in the road where that ended up evolving into this interest in design in the early years of the web and information architecture and eventually on in, into fuzzy math. What shines through to me, though, still, is that sense of a mission, 
a purpose of values that are driving how this agency business that he co-founded continues to operate. So we get into some of that, you know, what that really means in how you sell design services to clients, how you invest and allocate time and space for team development, uh, and how you, as a leader, how Mark, as a leader, finds that time for himself as well. So have a listen. I hope you'll enjoy and let me know what you think. Um, You'll find the show notes with everything that Mark and I talked about uh, and a link to get in touch over at mobileuserexperience.com. So here you go. Here's my conversation with Mark Baldino, co-founder of Fuzzy Math. I suppose if there's one silver lining which has come out of this year, I think it's that we have had more pets make an appearance on podcasts and video calls, and it's provided some much-needed relief. You bet. The bar for video calls is is so much lower, and I think that has um, really reduced a lot of anxiety. And uh, I know on my myself and my team's part to not be like exactly perfect while we're doing everything. Everyone just sort of feels like okay. You know, we got through that. That's and we got the information we needed. You didn't have to be terribly polished. So, the introduction of dogs and introduction of dogs and babies has been has been fantastic. I just think it's it's sort of um, it's sort of calmed down meetings a little bit, which I I really have enjoyed. I suppose there's possibly something to that in relation to this kind of design work as well. I mean, yeah, the, the clue is in the title. We're trying to do human centered design as an industry, mm-hmm. and if you allow people to show up as the entire humans that they are in doing that work, then ah, you've got to feel that there's a line there which connects through to being able to be more effective in, in doing that kind of work. hundred, I would say 100%. I think asking people to falsely represent themselves in any process, you know, it's going to break down at times. And people who are better actors, um, they end up being the people who are better consultants because of the perception of how they've been able to act. And I don't discredit people like that. I'm, I'm not somebody who walks into a room and, and instantly captivates everyone. Um, but I think for, for me and my team, now that we're able to be a little bit more honest about who we are, we're doing a better job as consultants. We're doing better human-centered design because we're, <laughs> we're being more human in the process. And um, we don't have to feel like we're, we have all the answers or... Um, we're terribly polished because that's just not the state, I think, of the human condition. I mean, I suppose it's a question that I have to ask you know, everyone who comes on the show now, given that we all have this shared experience now globally of going through a pandemic over the last year. I mean, have there been things above and beyond what's happened with your, your team and the way they show up which have surprised you? about how that's changed, you know, what you what you had expected of this year for fuzzy math. I mean, what we had expected of this year of, of really 2020 in general, um, you know, and obviously it just abruptly changed in in March, like for many people and, and many businesses. And we kind of, we did throw, we, th- we threw it out a little bit. Um, whatever we had as, uh, as plans, it was really, let's, let's reshuffle the decks a little bit. Let's focus on what matters, which is keeping the business running. Um, let's ensure that our team is is sort of supported um, emotionally and from a you know just a I think like a bandwidth perspective. If to, to break it down into that sort of crude analogy of how much bandwidth people have, um, 
in their minds to participate in work, you know, that bandwidth was reduced a lot for very, very good reason. And so we would try to be acutely aware of that. I am really impressed with, with two components, really from my team's perspective. One was their ability to, to raise a hand at times when that bandwidth was running low and they were maybe, you know, dipping into the, to, to the lower energy and feeling a little bit scattered and, and pulling themselves out of work at fuzzy math for a few hours, in some cases, a few days to really just recharge because um, whether it was the pandemic or black lives matter movement, like there was a lot to draw our, our, our attention outside of, of work. And so I was really impressed. We, we tried to provide space, but people, it's hard for people to take space. Right. And it's hard for them to sometimes speak up, but my team, my team really did. And, and that was, that was really impressive. I think the second thing that was, that was a unique and, and, and really good surprise kind of alluded to when talking about how we approached meetings. But I think there was really a democratization of, of meetings in many ways. Like no one wants to be a, a square on a screen and look at squares on a screen. Like I don't, I never want to suggest that that's the, that's the optimal way for humans to interact. But, but there's something that, that level sets um, when we're, we're boxes on a screen. And I mean that when we're doing, we want a, a lot of our work to be uh, collaborative. Everyone wants their work to be collaborative, right? And we, we do a lot of workshops, and sometimes that's a real challenge when you're, you know, you're in a room. Now, when you're running a workshop in a room, yes, it can be more dynamic. Um, it's much more personable, but you still end up dealing with a lot of um, internal politics that exist within groups or um, interpersonal dynamics that inter- that exist. So you carry all of that into um, that room and into that works, workspace or, or, or workshop. Once we became squares on a screen, you know, we could obviously aided by collaborative tools. We found that a lot of the internal politics um, were removed or were less present. And we had more honest dialogues with our clients. And part of that could have been the pandemic and people were feeling a little bit more open to, to talking about things in general and and they were they were feeling a little bit more. The one thing we avoid as human centered designers is um, doing like focus groups because when you talk to a group of people, one person is always going to dominate. And when we're talking about a corporate client, that tends to be the org charter hierarchy of the company that sort of dominates. But but we were able to do a lot of work where we talked to and got the same amount of input and feedback to our work. Um, from all levels within an organization. And I do think that was because the technology has sort of um, uh, leveled the playing field a little bit. And while I would have much preferred to have all of those meetings in person and talking to people and shaking hands, you know, everyone's sort of um, craving human contact these days. I do think that there was a bit of a democratization of the human-centered design process um, and our relationship to our clients as consultants that that I think was a, a... a huge surprise to me. Um, and I think it was a really, it was a benefit to my team and the work we do um, and what we're sort of advocating for. Were there any particular tools or techniques, you know, in those virtual environments that have become your go-tos during that time? 
you know, I know everyone's been taking on this challenge in slightly different ways, but are there any which you've found have really sort of accelerated that process of being able to get a set of results from the virtual environment that previously you would have had to, to use a physical meeting for? I mean, we were pre-adopters of Zoom before the pandemic, and so Zoom was our platform, but there's not much I see unique in Zoom, but we paired that with Miro, which is an online collaboration tool. The combination of those two allowed us to kind of have different segments to the work we were doing with our clients. There's a bit of teaching and learning, which would have existed either way. We had a lot more space for individual work. I think sometimes when people are in a room and you're asking them to think about an idea while you're sitting around with your colleagues, it's a little unnatural. You're looking at over your shoulder, you're looking at the person next to how much are they writing. We do a lot of co-creation sketching of interfaces. And when you're sitting next to somebody and you're sketching something, and they're sketching something, you're immediately going to compare yourself to them. But we would create these times where everyone could put, you know, turn off their camera and mute themselves, and they would have 10 minutes of isolated time to do some sketching on an idea. And then they would take a picture of it and mail it to us, which is you know, the only way we could sort of get it. And then we would have these group discussions. But that immediately democratized the process of I'm going to work on my own and I'm going to share it with my team. And then my team is going to bring it out to the group and we're going to have a discussion about these concepts and ideas. And that balance between individual work, um, large group discussions, then we would do breakout rooms for small groups discussions, I think really broke down a lot of the barriers. And I think it enabled people to feel a little bit more comfortable in what they were doing as opposed to if they were literally sitting next to their colleague who could sketch a little bit better than they could, you know, they would have been a little bit more anxious in person. So we use Miro and, and Zoom meetings, and I think those that was really the combination that we've that we used starting in in March and have been using through today. It's interesting there that you mentioned about that idea of switching off the camera and giving people a bit of kind of offline time to go through their ideas and then share them back because you know in a way it's it's space right in the same way that in perhaps a visual design often it can be the absence of something and the creation of a bit of space around something else which brings the whole thing to life and i know i've found that myself in you know, this last year or so of working a lot more virtually with people and not being able to do physical workshops that making time for those moments of space in that exercise can often be the thing which gives it a bit of energy or re-energizes people. I mean, have you found that in other parts of the work that you're doing in the way these projects that you work with on clients unfold as a whole? You bring up a great point about that that space or that that silent time. I mean, I think it's sort of an ebb and flow of, I mentioned bandwidth before, effort and energy as well, and kind of monitoring those on the team. And I think people come in at different times and are able to dive in and bring high energy and then they kind of need to recuperate and step back. So what we've tried to find or what we noticed and have tried to honor was that people were going to be very dialed in at certain times, days, weeks, and that they were going to be a little bit more dialed out. And so it's really about just knowing and, and sort of being aware, monitoring the team and, and having, a, frankly, a lot of one-on-one conversations, which start with, how are you doing outside of outside of work? Like, how, how is it going? And then being able to be respectful of that ability to focus and and, de- and and kind of be unfocused. And I think that, that if you're working traditional nine to five, people find times obviously to get energy back and be a little bit less focused. But I think the pressure is there a little bit more. And we're doing creative work. Um, we do a lot of research, talking to users and customers. That requires like 
so much energy to be focused for that. And you just can't do that more than a few times a day and not need that exact amount of time off. But the creative process is draining. And so I think what we've, again, what we've just noticed is that there are going to be peak periods of people being energized and that there's going to be an equal and opposite reaction of, of periods of them being de-energized. And, and that has to be okay because I think one supports the next. And I, I don't want to say I've preferred it because it's been a really stressful year, but I think we've gotten actually better quality work out of folks. And I think our clients are, not that they were unhappy, but they're really happy with the work product that we're creating um, this year. And I do think it is this sort of balance between being on and off, dialed in and a little bit dialed out. Can I ask you a little bit looking back, Mark? So, I mean, some of the things that you're describing there, I think about the level of awareness that as a leader, particularly in the area of design, that you need around how the rest of the team is feeling, where that energy is coming from. Are you able to track back when you felt that started to show up in your own role? Because when you start out as a designer, that, that's not necessarily the expectation or not necessarily part of the formal job description. But when you're in the kind of role that you are now running an agency, it, it very much is. But I, I'm wondering, you know, when you think back, if there are recollections that you have about, you know, when you felt that started to become more of your day-to-day role versus outputting some of the uh, more traditional design deliverables. You know, one of the benefits of, of human-centered design methodologies is you're doing research and design in service of, of human beings. Um, you're trying to put yourselves in their their shoes. Empathetic design comes up a lot in being an empathic person. Um, that is, I will say, not was not a natural skill for me uh, to start being empathic with people. But there's something inherent in the design process that we run that kind of trains that. And and when you extract that out to um, personal relationships you have out of out of work, or in this case, um, how one interacts with one's employees, you can you can apply tools you've learned in the human centered design toolkit to to your work with with employees. I'll, I'll say it extends to clients as well, but certainly with employees. You know, I started as a, a design practitioner, um, was doing design. Uh, I wasn't intending to run an agency or or consultancy, um, but it happened and it, it was a good move and I'm thrilled um, next month coming up on, on 12 years and that's that's super exciting and I'm proud of that. May I ask what your first design gig was? You know, What was the moment that you <laughs> started to think of yourself as a designer? Gosh, um, it took a while before I really allowed myself to consider myself a designer. When I graduated um, university with a theology degree and so um, nothing to do with design, I had had design and architecture on my back mind, you know, in the back of my mind, I, I thought maybe I would go an engineering, math, computer science route, but there's too much formal math. And then I thought maybe architecture, um, but it was going to put me in in undergrad for five years. And I was like, boy, that's a really big commitment to a craft that I don't know if I want to do. And so I instead went really pure liberal arts. And I was fortunate to get a job at a small agency in, in, D, in Washington, D.C., um, and I was an information architect. And when I got hired, I had no idea what an information architect was, not at all. So they gave me this book, Information, information Architecture for the World Wide Web, um, where we were looking at the concepts of classification of information and, and information architecture, and then applying it to technology. And I thought, this is amazing. I didn't have any development, like technical engineering skills. Um, computer. I didn't do the computer science degree, so I couldn't be a coder. 
and I didn't have experience to be sort of a, a what we would call a um, you know product manager right now. So I got this role, and and had had a little bit of, of in user interface design work, but it was really like process analysis and redesign. And um, and over the course of two years at this consultancy out in in DC, um, I along the way was referred to as a designer, and it wasn't until I had to leave. I, I moved back home to Chicago, and I started looking for other jobs. And I realized this. This is about uh, 2001. The niche was really small, and there weren't a lot of information architecture jobs out there. But they were all around design, and I sort of realized I, I am a designer. I've been doing design. I've been doing design work. Um, I'm just doing it from a different angle. I'm not doing it from the traditional creative aspect. Um, I'm doing it from like a process uh, perspective, and that was really powerful for me to see that there are a lot of different shapes and sizes and skill sets within the design community, and I, I maybe had a place there. And this was in Chicago? It was when I got back to Chicago. So I spent two years after I uh, went to school in D.C. and then um, spent two years out in D.C. working for this consultancy, and then I decided to move back to Chicago. Um, and when I started to look for jobs, I realized, boy, I really had like this diamond in the rough of a, of a, a, of a position, and I needed, to start to, I needed to start to look a little bit broader in the design community, and I, I sort of realized, wow, I am, I am a designer here. So what is it about Chicago and design? Because I don't really know the city well at all. But I do know that even in doing this podcast, I can think of several episodes where we've had people who call Chicago home come on, who obviously have very interesting views about design and in some way relate that back to, to the city. But I'm wondering, you know, for someone like me who doesn't really have much experience of the place, you know, is there anything that you can point to which makes Chicago a place where that, that sort of design community can grow and thrive? You know, it's funny. Uh, I don't think that Chicagoans feel from a digital perspective that like the design community um, is stronger than you might find out in the Bay Area. Um, I think in, instinctually, um, and I think the interests of the folks I know, you know, it's, it, it tends to be in more <clears throat> art and architecture. I mean, the Illinois Institute of um you know, IIT is here in Chicago, um, and Mies van der Rohe has a series of, of buildings and obviously taught there. And so I think Chicago architecture, when people think what's Chicago design, that's exactly where we go. Um, and I think that we feed off of that a, a, a little bit. Um, and so it's maybe it's part of our kind of, of part of our DNA. Um, the thing with Chicago is, um, you know, m- people from the Midwestern, part of the United States, sometime we, we catch a, a little bit of, of, of guff for maybe being not as business focused as you find out in New York and maybe as startup and you know technology focused as you find in the Bay Area. But there is a lot of hard work that gets done in Chicago and it is part of this Midwestern ethos. And so that's where when you think of applied art, you think of architecture. And so I think that there's this sort of lineage and DNA we have of using design to build things that are impactful for people. And so when I th- think of, you know, some Chicago technology companies, are they more impactful than you'd find in New York or the Bay Area, Seattle? I don't know. But I think that there's sort of a grind to the work we do. And we keep things really practical and pragmatic. And we apply design in a way that we hope it has maximum impact, as opposed to design for design's sake, which has a space, right? 
staring at a piece of modern artwork. And for me, it's more about thoughts and feelings. It's, 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 it's much more about the, the form than it is the function. But I think when you think about Chicago design, there is a bent towards the, the functional components of it. Did you have those kind of values in mind for fuzzy math when you founded the agency in the first place? Um, have you stuck with a, a set of values since you founded it or have they evolved over time? It's a great question. We describe ourselves as practical and, and pragmatic. We had an early client at Microsoft refer to us as flexible pragmatists, which was which was great. And so that came from a client, but certainly is it was in my DNA. Ben is my business partner. It was certainly in his DNA. And so that's how we've described ourselves, not wanting to be put in this box where we're doing conceptual art or conceptual design and ma- really making sure that we're, we're kind of doers at the end of the day. We, we, you know, if you go to our website now, it says user experience, um, you know, design and strategy. We put the strategy as a tagline in the marketing and started to speak about strategy uh, just within the past three or four years. We came about doing strategic work really naturally. Um, we just realized and had clients tell us, you're helping us strategically right now. And um, you're not saying it's strategy and that's fine, but just so you know, you're helping us um, uh, position a product strategically, re, uh, sort of reorient and, and, and rework how our teams uh, collaborate with one another, how we build digital products. You're putting a, a digital strategy in, in place. We kind of just saw it as doing good work, and this is what they what they needed. And so we were kind of hesitant to say we were strategy. I mean, we're kind of hesitant to call ourselves consultants um, uh, because we see ourselves as <clears throat> as designers. Now, if you ask my team what the values are of our company, it probably won't be flexible pragmatists that do strategy. We have a series of values on you know on our website. I created the first round of those five or six years ago based on conversations I had one-on-one with team members. And it was used as part of a internal planning um, like process I was going through. And about two years later, some team members came and said, hey, we like these, but we want to update them. And so they owned them and they took them over. And so when you look at what the values are, you know, the overall ethos is, you know, do good work and be good people. That could be really any company. But when you look at the six or seven supporting principles, you know, uh, be kind, be humble, bring your best, support each other. Um, all of those are coming from the team um, about how they interact with one another and want to interact with our with our clients. And you know, there's still one on there around being flexible. And I think that that harkens back to that flexible pragmatism we heard, you know, in year one of the business. So now the team owns the values and they represent both uh, uh, a point in time of where we are, but they are kind of aspirational for, for where we want to be and, and how we want to interact with others out there in the world as, as, you know, members of Fuzzy Math. How have you found over the years that your own sort of skills have sharpened in terms of understanding which clients are going to be a good fit for those values or where they can make the most difference. Because having seen a little bit of some of the clients that you've worked with and the different case studies that you've talked about on the website, it strikes me as quite a a diversity to them. It's quite a a broad range. Um, It seems like there are also some industries there like healthcare where you're dealing with yeah, potentially some of the more sort of extreme aspects of where user experience work is done in terms of the way you need to, to respect and interact in, in certain environments. And, you know, I'm just wondering if over the time of, of running the agency, you've found you've been able to get a, 
a better feel, a better instinctive feel for when you're going to find that right fit with a client. I think the team at Fuzzy Math would be comfortable doing 100% healthcare day in and day out. It has it has two components that we love. The first is this complex ecosystem of people processing and data. And we love those ecosystems. Like these are thorny problems. They require a lot of um, kind of fortitude to, to, to get through and understand. Um, uh, there's the, I think the human-centered design process is really good at, at unpacking this overlap of people processing and data. But you can get that in, in financial services. And we haven't done a lot of financial services. And it's because, not because we don't want to, but because healthcare has a second component, which is the, the human component. There, specifically in 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 the U.S., um, where we've done all of our healthcare work, the overlap between economics and and patient care uh, is is you know it's highly overlapped. It's highly it's highly complex. You need to run a business as a hospital, um, you know, providing healthcare that both needs to have um, high level of sort of customer satisfaction, low levels of of readmittance rates. And that's tied to financial success, and you need to financially run this institution or, you know, large series of hospitals. And so there's a there is a financial component, but there's a human component, and we love kind of getting into that balance because our job as uh, human centered designers is to advocate for for the humans, uh, and there are providers who are humans, right? But the, the humans that are patients, and so we love working on that. And so healthcare as a vertical because it has those kind of overlaps, it's always in, it's always an easy fit for us. But if I've learned anything, and I tell my team this all the time, if I've learned anything over the past 12 years in doing sales and business development, it's that the conversations I have during the sales process, my communication with the client, the client's communication with me, how forthcoming I can be with them, how forthcoming they are with me, um, their willingness to listen and as much as talk, maybe my willingness to be able to listen and, and, and talk at the same time. Whatever that vibe is that's happening during sales is going to be represented in the, 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 the project itself. Whatever I learn during sales, however well, I'll just say this at a high level, if I get along with someone during the sales process, that same vibe or ethos is going to happen on the project. And the reverse is true. If I'm struggling to communicate, somebody's not necessarily understanding what I'm saying. They don't need to get the process, but they need to understand why we do it. If they're pushing back and they've kind of come into the equation with, I know exactly what I need. Give me that checklist of the seven things you do and give me time and a cost. Um, generally, if they're unwilling, if they're unwilling to bend or listen, how are we going to be able to help them on the project as as consultants? We're really going to be tactical doers at that point. And there might be a great project with a great client that is more tactical in nature. I'm totally fine with that. But you don't hire a consultancy to come in and just tell you exactly what you want to hear. You have to be willing to listen. So um, I just tell my team, if this is difficult in sales, we're probably not going to take it um, unless it's some amazing project and, and the team sort of agrees to it. Um, and I kind of give the team a rundown of this is how – we communicated and this was the information exchange during sales because this is what you're going to kind of get on the, on the project and what you can expect. So um, that's just something I've, I've learned. And, and I've had a few cases obviously where that, you know, project's been more difficult than we thought or client got easier over time, but generally my, you know, I, I don't have a lot of maxims, but one of them is that um, difficult, difficult sales mean difficult project. Does it flow through to the measurement of that work as well? I mean, do you find that that differs substantially 
from industry to industry, both in terms of how you as a team internally evaluate whether or not you've delivered on the brief that you hope to deliver on, and also how you find that you're able to demonstrate and communicate that value to the client? Well, one thing that's changed in the past year, year and a half of how I do sales is I talk about value on the first call in the first few minutes. I used to go in, as a lot of folks do, and they, they pitch, right? I'm going to talk about how awesome we are, how great we've, we've done, um, what clients we've worked with, case studies, how my team's amazing. Everyone who comes in to pitch is saying exactly that. There's no, no reason to not talk about how awesome you are. But I've stopped doing it. I don't talk about uh, fuzzy math on initial calls with clients, uh, really, if ever, except at the end, if they have some questions. I ask a lot of questions, and I talk about what value means to this individual or group or to the client as a whole. So we end up talking about what are some of the goals and drivers and metrics and what success looks like. Um, I do a lot of future state projections with clients, which sounds complicated, but it's basically, let's put ourselves three years down the road. Project is long done, but we're catching up for a a beverage, coffee, adult beverage. um, And you're describing what success on this project looks like and how it's impacted your business as a whole. Describe that scene to me. And that puts the client in a much different perspective than just saying, here are the 15 things I need from a design vendor. It really gets them towards what ultimate success looks like in a three-year window. And we don't work in, I mean, sometimes we work with clients over the course of three years, but most projects are, yeah, six months, right? So you're getting them way outside of the bounds of just, you know, hey, yes, we got the product out the door and on time and on schedule, but what did success look like? And that allows me to dial into what's valuable to them and what services can we provide that are valuable. And it also allows us to start speaking in terms of like business success and business drivers and start to um, take our work that we're doing day in and day out and start to tie it to things that the business cares about um, and tie our work to, the, to, to, to those metrics and KPIs. Because once we can actually measure our value in the same way that the business measures their value, our client, um, client's business measures a value, you know, we know we're, we're kind of having a significant impact. And that's a very different perspective than I had for the first 10 years at Fuzzy Math in terms of how I was going to sell, but how what sort of conversations and conversations I wanted to have with potential clients. I've just sort of changed the nature of those. It's, it tends to be more about them, frankly. And that's how, that's how sales should be. I heard somebody say uh, at some point that sales is about service. It's not about selling, it's about service. And so if I can provide a service on a half an hour or a 90 minute sales call, I've kind of done my job. And if a project comes out of that, absolutely fantastic. And if not, hopefully I'm leaving them something, you know, that they can, that they can utilize moving forward. Yeah. That's an interesting way to frame it. That idea of the, the future state and where you set the time horizon. I mean, maybe that even tells you a little something about where the clients are themselves, about where they want to set that time horizon, you know, how far into to the future. But I'm wondering what gets you excited when you have those conversations? You know, what what are you hoping you're going to hear from the client when you ask them about what kind of metrics, what kind of shape of that future state uh, they're looking for are there particular things you know without necessarily naming the particular client that it would relate to but that you remember hearing and thinking yes this is something which is going to be a really engaging project for us one is obviously kind of the commercial aspect when we're working on a project that has commercial value that is going to provide them a return on investment that's exciting for me as a business owner because i know we're impacting the business but 
that's only one component of it. Um, I like to see when I've been most excited is kind of how the people at the organization are operating and how they're kind of engaged with their clients. A lot of time, our work is to improve a product or service that's then being you know sold to to uh, our clients' clients or our clients' customers, and hearing about better and more positive ex- exchanges between those two is what I want to hear. What I what I love to hear. We have a client that's in debt collection, which is not the um, it's not the most exciting field. I mean, there's a lot of um, interest in it. It is an interesting one, but um, it's a tough field, right? Doing um, research with people who are um, uh, you know in debt is a is a real challenge for folks. But hearing the client describe where they, the relationship that they want to have with people in debt in three years and how they want that to be a positive relationship for both sides and really upend the industry, that's fascinating for me because that starts to get into the human side of what we're doing, the, the ethical side of, of design. And, and so that, that tied with this is going to be financially um, beneficial for them. You know, There's a balance there between ethics and commercials and, and money, but the fact that they want to drive a better relationship in the debt collection and financial services industry. Like I love hearing those discussions. I love hearing that and that we can be a part of that process of transforming that business is that's super powerful. And, and it's great that sometimes you hear that and I, I still can't provide the right value, right? I'm not the right fit from a services perspective. When I am the right fit from a services perspective, it's, you know, it's all the better. Outside of the client work, what are your priorities for the team and for the agency in terms of keeping fresh with other inspirations, you know, whether they're leading towards the development of skills or keeping abreast of what's happening in terms of technologies, you know, there are particular approaches that you take to make sure that you're able to offer that fresh perspective to the clients from something other than the other client projects that you're working on? Yeah, it's a, such a good question because I think um, as designers who spend, you know, 24-7 thinking about design um, or in the mind of design or always looking at other tools and processes, we don't realize that that's just a, that's a, we, that's a benefit of our craft, right. Of our profession and our clients don't spend their time in that space. And so that ability to, to stay fresh and provide those perspectives to clients, I never thought was like a, you know, a tangible skill, but it is. And so, I mean, formally we have a, Um, You know, we have a credit for continuing education, and I think that that serves one component. But we build in time every week for the team members to do non-client related work, depending on how senior you are, that shifts a little bit. But we have a series of internal working groups, and those working groups allow people to do things that are of interest to them, but also a benefit to the company. And as part of that, you know, every third Friday, we meet as a team for a half day or, or, or a full day. And we do information exchanges around key topics. They can be around, one of the groups is called craft. So it's what it means to be a designer, to be at a high level of craft. Uh, how do you upskill? What does what sort of career and skill de- development look like? We have another one that's all around values and vision. Um, we have one that's around um, diversity, equity, and inclusivity, which is a big um, kind of push at, at, at Fuzzy Math. We're on a sort of a three-year plan to to improve DEI at, at Fuzzy Math. And so when we gather as teams, one of these uh, sort of focus groups will lead exercises. And that is about information exchange. Um, it can be um, working on our process. Uh, it can be teaching the team something new that, um, they, that they've learned. And so this sort of 
I would say informal skill and information share is really built into the DNA at, uh, at Fuzzy Math and, and Ethos. We have a, a group of lifelong learners and they love to learn from the people around them and then maybe go out into into the world of design or technology or art and architecture and, and pull in some of those learnings back to the team. So it's all about, uh, I think one thing we've done well and it's a credit to the team is is having kind of open and honest and, and thoughtful discussions about the work we do um, and how we can improve that work and how we can better serve our clients, but also how can how we can imbue the work we do with the values that that we've you know listed on our website and, and consider are the values of, of fuzzy math and and so that stuff's a lot really driven by by the team and and that um, at the end of the day makes me very proud. And what about you, Mark? I mean, this is one thing that I think I've come to realize from having quite a few of these conversations now with people who either have founded agencies or are running large design departments in big companies is yeah there's a lot of thought often given to how the team as a whole continues that sort of development but it's not always easy as a leader to find that time yourself do you get an opportunity to go and search out those tangential inspirations for your own practice you know my practice has changed i don't i don't do as much design work as I, I used to. I, I'm involved in a lot of organizational design, UX team building and UX org design. So, and in fact, if, I'm slowly putting together a book um, based on conversations that I'm having with leaders of leaders of UX teams, design teams in large organizations. So specifically um, kind of bigger companies and how those teams operate and, and thrive. And that's a something different than than I've done in the past, and and it's one part of our work that really inspires me, um, because it is um, it's it's not doing the tactical production side of the design work. It's really solving the human equation of how to get teams operating. So I actually get to extract some knowledge of how we've built fuzzy math, but 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 also help um, other design leaders who need to influence sort of direction at their business. And so I'll say that shift in, in my focus of, of work and the types of projects that I take on, they align with my personal interests there. And I, I, I derive a lot of personal satisfaction in those types of, of, of projects because they're just different in, in their nature. I have a pretty good, um, on off switch as a, as a person. And so, um, for me, I, you know, I'm able to um, gather inspiration from things that are less directly related to to the work I'm doing. So maybe less design inspiration, and that I'm directly applying to like our craft. And it's more kind of stepping back out of out of the business and and turning my brain off a little bit. And um, I have that as a maybe a personality trait, and I think that served me well as a kind of a business owner because at times I can, um, although it's hard, I can put it to the back burner of, of where fuzzy math is and what success looks like for the business. And I can sort of step back and say, well, you know, what does success look like for me? What of I do this exercise of, um, what do I, what do I need to do that I can't stop doing? What do I enjoy doing? And then there's this, what can I stop doing? And, um, I, I don't do it formal, but I, I keep kind of a running log of, of areas and try to take things off of my plate that, um, that might, I might not need to be doing and try to, increase the things I love doing. As I mentioned, these sort of UX org design projects, I love them. So I'll put more of that on my plate and take off some other, um, some other components. So for me, it's, it is a, a little bit about finding projects at, at Fuzzy Math that um, are, uh, I can find inspiration from and, and learning um, uh, about. And then it's, it's really about kind of shutting, shutting down, um, which has had 
uh, it's a whole nother, um, it's a lot diff- more difficult these days because I'm not physically leaving an office to, to make that mental switch between at work and off work. But I've tried very hard to, to make that switch um, and make it concrete in my mind and then sort of step away from the business as a whole so it's not consuming all of my waking hours. Yeah, I guess we're all having to get a little bit creative about how we, we flick that on-off switch without the, the geographical separation that a lot of people had before. Yeah. Um, it does make me wonder, you know, some of the things you mentioned there about that sort of ability to, to shift modes about, I guess, what you could call a fork in the road moment. You know, when you think back to that first job that you took in information architecture, what was the fork in the road there? What did the other path look like? You know, at that time, what was the alternative if you hadn't have gone down the path that you did end up going down? The fork in the road was working in non-for-profits at the time. So the consultancy wasn't my first, I call it my first real job because it was the first like design job I had, but I had had two jobs previously and they were kind of mini forks in the road. The first job out of uh, the university was at a non-for-profit. I was doing program management, um, which basically means you're doing a little bit of everything to support this, um, this organization. And, um, I enjoyed the the mission, um, f- the sort of mission component of working at a not for profit, um, and how you know you kind of feel like you're you're working for a cause and and doing good. I had a small sliver of my job that was putting publications together for you know, like preprint and then um, maintaining the website. And I just realized over time, like I really like this website stuff, and I hadn't even taken any courses in in web design. And so I just went, I, I, I took um, an hour of someone's time who built the website and just had them walk me through how they did it. And I just like learned and I, I only spent about six months there um, before I, th- I thought I should probably uh, maybe scratch this itch a little bit. The web design seems really, really interesting. It's, I'll be honest, it's 1999. So the web is on its first boom. It's ready. The bubble's about to burst. Um, so there's a lot of jobs and a lot of interest. I'm not the only person that's interested in technology at this time, but I'm sort of like, I actually out of all the things I'm doing during the day, like this is captivating for me and I'm trying to carve more and more time out, but I couldn't because I had all these other responsibilities. So I took a job as a web developer as job two, which just between you and I, and I'm sorry to my boss at the time, I had no business having this job. I don't know how I got it. Uh, I had no technical skills. I think I knew how to use Dreamweaver um, and I learned on the job and uh, I really liked it, but I was like, I was in over my head. So I only stayed a few months and that's when I found this consultancy. Um, and so I think the big fork was technology or not technology. Am I going to do something that's mission oriented or am I going to do something that's technology oriented or design oriented? And I, and I, and I chose the, the design. I hope, I really hope that over time, those paths of being mission oriented, you know, when I started fuzzy math, I could sort of bring that back, even though we're, we're, we're not a not-for-profit, we do have some stuff in the plans that we're going to be announcing in the next few months that are along those lines that I'm very excited about. Um, that will bring a little bit more of a, a mission side to, to to fuzzy math, but but that was it. It was it was not for profit, mission oriented, or am I going to or am I going to go towards kind of technology and design full steam ahead? Was that another fork in the road? The founding of fuzzy math, that choice to build an agency of your own, because it, it strikes me that there are a lot of people who become very accomplished in their careers as designers, but who never found an agency business of their own. 
don't necessarily have the desire to found an agency business of their own. But that's that's clearly something which you felt was important in, in that moment. And I'm wondering, you know, what was the what was the other path there and, and what made you follow the one particularly towards what has become fuzzy math? The path I've taken and any success I've had has been kind of it's been a combination of a few things. One is is um, I'll give myself a little bit of credit for for working hard and being dedicated to what I'm doing, but it's also it, the, the fortunate side is just timing, right? Uh, I might not have gotten that that job at the first consultancy out in out in DC, and I might have stayed in the world of not for profits. Um, and and that that being fortunate that they were willing to hire somebody with not great technical skills for this new role of information architecture in two two thousand. Um, you know, I was very, I was very fortunate to get that. And it took me on a path to, to, to eventual user experience design. I, I had worked my last job, full-time job before fuzzy math was working at orbits, um, which Chicago based, um, online travel agency. And, um, you know, at orbits, I met folks that were similar in, in background in terms of how they'd gotten to the UX world, but we had a really big UX team and, and at some point I, I started freelancing. I left Orbitz and I started freelancing and, and I loved it. I was kind of a one man band. I had some people around me um, that I worked very closely with, two of whom I started Fuzzy Math with, but it was this sort of merry band of freelancers moving from one project to the next. And I really, really like that. And so at some point we, we had to make a decision. Um, we were having success, right? So I think that's the hard work and, and timing and, and some connections that we had. And actually, Microsoft was our last client as freelancers and our first fuzzy math client. And so that came through connections that we had, and, and, and we worked hard on that project. But in order to continue to have success, we had to decide, do we want to be this group of freelancers, all kind of on our own with our own self-interest? Totally fair, totally fine. Or do we want to try to have a company here that is actually an actual company where we create careers for ourselves and we create careers for other people. And we take it a little bit more seriously um, and we kind of dedicate ourselves to not just doing design, but building a company. And it wasn't in my mind that while still working full-time for other folks, it kind of was in my mind that I was I was running a one-person agency as a, as a freelancer. But I just think it was that we were working really hard. It sounds weird. We didn't set out to make an agency. We set out to do good work and work really hard for our clients. And the success that we had and the timing, which I think is is fortuitous, allowed us to build on that success. And so even when we decided, let's make our first hire, which was one of the other people we'd been working with. So we had four, but we'd all known each other. We then made one UX hire. And Nick, and he's been with us since then. So he's been with Fuzzy Math coming up on like 10 and a half years, something like that, almost the entirety of, of time. Once we you know, made a job offer to somebody with benefits, it becomes a whole nother, a whole nother ball game. But we were still clearly focused on just doing good work for, for our clients and weren't necessarily worried about agency, consultancy, startup, or even being business owners. That doesn't happen until you, you, you got a few years in and then you realize, oh, I'm a business owner and you start kind of acting like one and thinking a little bit differently. So yeah, I think that fork would have been continuing to work on my own, maybe going to back to work for someone else and amazingly hit on two huge forks in, in, in my path. So kudos 
to you for that because those are the two biggest shifts in in my career arc over time. It was deciding to stick with design and technology, and then deciding to to, to start fuzzy math. And um, in both of them, I think I'm lucky. I'm, I totally made the right decision. I wouldn't I wouldn't go back to working for somebody else. And um, while I hope I can do some mission oriented work in the future, I'm much happier uh, you know running an agency. I appreciate you sharing openly about those. I mean, there's something I always find fascinating personally, you know, I suppose that sense of just being able to imagine other possibilities and other paths and how that influences the the choice at the time and how that then has a sort of spillover effect into the path that you you do end up on. But I mean, if, if we look out a little bit into the future, I was really intrigued by what you were saying about that desire to bring a bit more of the the, the mission uh, if you like, back into the, the work that you're doing with fuzzy math and I guess hinting that, yeah, you might have some things in the pipeline for that. I mean, without spoiling the secret and, and sharing <laughs> too much, um, does that speak to some hopes that you have for things that you haven't yet had a chance to, to do with the business? A hundred percent. I mean, we, um, I, I, one thing we've always done well, I, th- I think, and I'm proud of is we've always had an internship program at, at fuzzy math. Um, from year one, before, frankly, we should have been supporting an internship program. We brought in somebody that we've still consulted with over the years who's fantastic. And she <laughs> she worked with us in our early days, and we were a little disorganized. But we've always supported internships every summer. And in starting in year two, we started doing not-for-profit work over the summer. So finding um, a, a not-for-profit or um, you know an organization that needed our support that we could apply our services to in, in in some way, shape, or form to kind of give to give back. We're also one uh, members of one percent for the planet. We give one percent of you know our top line to organizations that are environmentally aligned. It's started by the the founder of Patagonia. So we found ways in bits and pieces to what I would say give back or support organizations financially or through the delivery of our of our design process in in bits and pieces and. Those two components of, of teaching and learning and helping people through internships. Um, we actually have our first um, apprentice at, at Fuzzy Math right now. So a slight, slightly different bent on an internship. An internship is was traditionally somebody who's kind of in a design program, maybe in between year one and two of, of a grad program. So has a skill, has a portfolio, and we're kind of trying to help them polish it and, and get out into the design world. The way we're taking you know, this first apprentice is somebody who has less of a portfolio um, that we can help build. And we're kind of, we're upskilling um, uh, along the way. And so this component of teaching um, uh, as a way to to give back to the design community and supporting non-for-profits or mission-driven organizations, those two things are overlapping a little bit in our minds. And I know that everybody at Fuzzy Math, but in particular, you know, the two founders, Ben and myself, like, we keep getting pulled towards that work and trying to figure out how can we support it more often on a regular basis. And, and that w- that's what we've put in, in place or starting to put in place that we're going to start to formalize a little bit. So I think it's a natural bent for founders as well to, to see that the commercial side of the business and that sales work, it's draining. It takes a lot of time and energy. And then you have to actually execute the work. Like consultancies, agencies are not easy to run. And I think you see a lot of successful agencies just kind of disappear some days because the founders are sort of, um, they're overrunning it. And so Ben and I are trying to figure out like what can help us refuel us and, and, and be the next stage of, of fuzzy math. And I think it's, it's more of this mission oriented work and how we can support that in a, in a, in a more formal or continuous manner. And, and that's kind of bubbled up in our minds as something that's going to keep us motivated moving forward. Well, I think there's a, a circularity to 
uh, particularly some of that desire around teaching, where if you're able to find the time and the space to do that and to pass on that knowledge, you know, there's something about going through the process of that, which I think really quite often comes back and rewards those who make the effort to do it. So I wish you the, the best of luck with the program um, and with the, the things that you're mentioning as well about the possibility of a book in the future. Perhaps you'll come back on the show and tell us how that works out um, sometime in the future. And it would be, be wonderful to catch up on that. Well, I appreciate that. I um, like running a podcast, writing a book is way more work than I realize. So I'm taking all this stuff slow. Something I've learned is try not to put something, you know, in two months or three months, I'm going to have a book out. I'm giving myself a year to put put all the pieces in place. So um, I would love to come back if I'm able to do it. Um, some people that I've been talking to about the book have said, you should start a podcast. And I'm going to I'm gonna push back on that one because it is a tremendous amount of effort. So I'd love to come back. I'd love to, to, to keep in contact um, with you. I appreciate the work you're doing to keep a, you know, a design and technology oriented podcast up and running and with, um, you know, some of the previous topics you've had really, really sort of fascinating discussion. So I appreciate you and the time and energy you're putting into this. Oh, well, I'm really glad we had the opportunity to do it today, Mark. And yes, do please come back on the show in the future and stay in touch. But uh, thanks for coming and taking the time today. You bet. Thank you. So what did you think of that? You know, when I'm reviewing these conversations to write up the show notes, I try to pick out and highlight interesting quotes in the audio from from each of the guests. And suffice to say that in this case, I was doing a lot of pausing and highlighting and making notes because there were just a lot of places where Mark's take on what it means to evolve uh, a values-based agency really struck a chord for me. I think perhaps most of all, I found myself reflecting on those moments towards the end of our chat where he was talking about those formative decisions and moments which led to the creation of this business that he's now still running over a decade later. I've had the chance to talk to lots of people who have founded and then gone on to lead design businesses of different sizes and each story is a little bit different they're all fascinating in their their different ways and it's just always a privilege when someone is willing to share what that experience felt like for them in in the moment now one thing i'm conscious of with mex as the pandemic continues around the world and we find ourselves unable to travel and, and gather as frequently as we might have done in the mex community previously it's just the importance of staying in touch you know where before we've had our conferences and our social calendar of breakfasts and lunches and dinners in cities all over the place i think it's just reminding me of the importance of things like this podcast and, and some of the online community experiments that we've been trying recently and some of you have really contributed very fully and and openly to which has been wonderful Uh, and it it all helps to keep that sense of sharing and and conversation going Uh, so do please keep in touch Um, and i'll be looking forward to telling you a bit more about some of the new upcoming community activities that we've got planned in the near future but in the meantime uh, you can reach me by email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com Always great to hear your feedback on these conversations. Always great to hear recommendations of who else uh, you'd like to hear me talking to on the show. 
Um, and you can head over to the website at mobileuserexperience.com to check out what's now really quite an extensive archive here. There are more than 75 of these conversations in the podcast library. So if this is new to you and you're tuning in for the first time, there's a wealth that you can dig into there. Uh, And if you are a regular listener and you want to go back to have a listen to some of those conversations in the past that might have resonated with you, they are all there and available at mobileuserexperience.com. So I'll be back soon with another episode. But for now, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.